It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of assault and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 28-year-old Brittany Norwood was nervous as she walked into the Lululemon store in Georgetown. The store had a buzz about it. Top 40 radio blared through the speakers. The mannequins wore chic leggings and brightly colored sports bras. A slim sales associate demonstrated a crescent lunch position to a guest, and another did jumping jacks by the registers. Brittany wanted this job badly. She yearned for the cool status and employee discounts. She put on her biggest saleswoman smile as she introduced herself to the store's manager. The manager led Brittany to the front, and they sat by the window, cross-legged, to begin Brittany's interview. The manager peppered her with questions. Why do you want to be at Lululemon? What's a challenge you've had to overcome? What's your favorite way to sweat? Brittany had every answer prepared. She loved exercise. She played soccer in college. She was good with high-end clients and determined to succeed in any way possible. The store manager was impressed with Brittany. Her bright, bubbly personality would help increase sales at her store. She was hired. But the manager didn't know that Brittany had lied about having a college degree. She didn't know that Brittany had once had a restraining order filed against her. And she couldn't know that months after her first day, the bubbly new sales associate would be willing to kill someone over a pair of yoga pants. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Today we're covering Brittany Norwood, a Lululemon employee who murdered a co-worker. This week, we'll follow Brittany as she goes from talented soccer star to compulsive thief and learn how a pair of yoga pants led to her violent act. Next week, we'll dive into the murder itself and how Brittany attempted to lie her way out of it. We'll explore whether or not Brittany had planned the murder and find out whether she's ever come clean about what really happened the night of March 11, 2011.
Brittany Norwood grew up nestled in all of the comforts of a typical suburban upbringing. Her family rented a home in a middle-class neighborhood just outside of Seattle, Washington, and their community included picture-perfect parks and private security. Her father, Earl Norwood, worked as a furniture upholsterer and ran his own shop. Her mother, Larkita, stayed at home to take care of their large brood of kids. Brittany was the sixth of nine children, who were all loved and adored by their parents. The kids were enrolled in private schools and regularly attended soccer camps. They were always dressed right for the weather and on time for the bus. Guests of their home recalled that Brittany's mother always greeted them with warmth and that Brittany and her siblings looked out for each other. Their home life was, as one friend described it, what a family was supposed to be. But as Brittany got older, cracks in her parents' financial well-being started to show. Though the 1990s was a period of growth for the U.S. economy, Earl's income didn't keep pace with the rising costs of raising nine kids. Average household expenditures in the United States grew by about 56% from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, and the Norwoods couldn't keep up. Earl and Larkita filed for bankruptcy twice during this period, owing over $90,000 worth of school tuition and doctor's bills. These financial troubles may have made Brittany feel like her home life was unstable. Before I continue with Brittany's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. A 2016 study on parental debt and the well-being of children by Lawrence M. Berger and Jason N. Houle found that children who came from families with significant debt were more likely to develop behavioral problems such as impulsivity, especially if the parent's debt was not related to home ownership or education. Some of Brittany's older siblings had already been sent off to college during the time when her parents declared bankruptcy, so as an adolescent still at home, she was hit hard. Brittany had to leave behind her private elementary school and enroll in a public high school. The Norwoods' multiple bankruptcies may have planted a deep seed of shame in Brittany, one that set the stage for some of her more deceptive behavior. Around this time of upheaval, a neighbor hired Brittany's sister to babysit her son a few nights a week. Eventually, Brittany asked to tag along, and the neighbor agreed. But over time, the neighbor noticed that she was missing spare change and that her costume jewelry had disappeared from her closet. She grew suspicious of Brittany, and though she never told them why, she asked the Norwood sisters to stop coming over to babysit. If this theft was an early sign of Brittany acting out her family's problems, she wasn't yet showing similar behaviors elsewhere. Her siblings had no idea what was beginning to happen. Outwardly, Brittany was outgoing and popular. She made good grades and was an active participant in many school clubs. She had a signature scent, lavender baby lotion and was known for wearing designer jeans and trendy t-shirts. She was beautiful and she was athletic. Brittany was a stellar soccer player and made the varsity team as a freshman. 
Though small, 5 foot 3 and 120 pounds, she was extremely fast. She worked hard at practice and played fearlessly. She was named to the 1999 News Tribune's All-Area Girls Soccer Team and attracted attention from Division I college coaches around the country. She eventually settled on Stony Brook University in Long Island, New York, and accepted a coveted scholarship to play for the team. In the spring of 2000, 18-year-old Brittany graduated from Decatur High School, packed her bags, and left the Pacific Northwest for the East Coast. She expected that she would be as impressive in college as she had been in high school, and even had dreams of playing in the U.S. women's national team. But the transition wasn't as easy as she'd hoped. Like many freshman athletes, she practiced with her team, but was asked to sit out of games her first season. She struggled in class and ended her freshman year on academic probation, which threatened her scholarship. But Brittany was focused, determined, and competitive. As one of her former coaches once said, Brittany was someone who didn't like to win so much as she didn't like to lose, and she wouldn't lose this opportunity. Brittany pulled her grades up and, with practice, transformed herself into a pivotal player on the team. By the end of her sophomore season, Brittany started all 19 games. Brittany's teammates lauded her for her skill and her leadership. They admired her for the way she didn't take herself too seriously and appreciated her friendship. Brittany was always willing to share food or get on the phone with a teammate who was going through a difficult time. She would even take friends out for meals at restaurants and volunteer to pay for it. She was generous. But soon, Brittany's outward persona started to crack and suspicious things began to happen. A teammate found that her wallet was constantly disappearing. Another couldn't find a Versace shirt. A third was missing $60 from her purse after a night of hanging out. All three incidents had occurred around Brittany. When confronted, Brittany claimed innocence. And when a teammate caught Brittany rummaging through her purse on an airplane, Brittany turned it around on her and accused her teammate of being crazy. Though Brittany took zero responsibility, there was no doubt in her teammates' minds that Brittany was a thief. Given her chronic history of theft, we could go so far as to describe Brittany as a kleptomaniac. According to a study conducted by psychiatrist Farid Ramzi Tali, kleptomania is an impulse control disorder that is characterized by recurrent episodes of compulsive stealing. Tali explains that while the cause of kleptomania is unknown, one theory for the disorder is that the kleptomaniac stealing can be seen as symbolic of a desire to repossess things that have been lost in childhood. If the emotional effects of Britney's parents' bankruptcies hadn't fully surfaced in high school, they were certainly surfacing now. Britney's friends started warning others that she was fun to be around, but that she had a habit of stealing. Her teammates complained to the coach. By her fourth year in college, in 2003, 21-year-old Britney's role on the team diminished. She played in only 12 of 19 games and left the team before her final season. It's unclear whether or not Britney left on her own or was officially kicked off, but either way, 
Britney's departure from the program meant that she lost not only her spot on the team, but also the coveted athletic scholarship that paid for the majority of her tuition. Only 11 units shy of graduating, Britney dropped out of school in the fall of 2004. Her degree, her shot at the national team, and her professional future had all been ripped out from under her because of her own sticky fingers. Coming up, Brittany has her first run-in with the law. Now back to the story. Brittany Norwood started college believing that she would one day be an Olympic soccer star. She had a few great seasons and was even named to the Northeast Regional team her junior year. But in the fall of 2004, the 22-year-old left the team and dropped out of school. When her family asked her why she didn't walk in the graduation ceremony, Brittany lied and told them that she had graduated, but there was a hang-up about her school loans. Brittany didn't know exactly what she wanted to do next, but she knew she wanted to have fun, just like any other normal 20-something college graduate would. She had siblings in Washington, D.C., and decided to move there until she figured it out. Her first step was to get a job. Though she didn't have a college degree, she managed to secure a position as a teller at a local Bank of America. And it was there that Brittany first met Dr. Maury Branch. The two quickly hit it off. Brittany learned that he was a dentist with his own practice. Soon she began working for Maury as an office manager. By 2006, the two had started a romantic relationship and things were getting serious. To Brittany, Maury was successful and was helping her to build a new life in a new city. She might not have graduated from college, but at least she had a boyfriend. But Maury was having a hard time getting to know Brittany closely and started to feel like something was off with her. At first, she'd said she'd graduated from college, but later she admitted that she hadn't really graduated and her reasons for dropping out were inconsistent. Worse still, Brittany was aggressive towards Maury. When they fought, he said she would sometimes physically attack him and throw things. When she acted like that, Maury was afraid of her. After over a year of dating, he called it quits. Brittany refused to accept that their relationship was over. She continued to call and text him, but Maury insisted that he only wanted to be friends. When he started dating another woman, Marjorie, Brittany was furious. She thought that he couldn't date someone else, not when he was supposed to be with her. If only he would see her face to face, Brittany believed he'd realize how much he missed her. One afternoon, Brittany texted Maury that she was coming over. They needed to talk. But Maury ignored the message and went out with Marjorie instead. Brittany was livid. She wanted revenge. She still had the keys to his apartment and knew the alarm code. So she decided to break in. She stepped into Mari's apartment and picked through some of his new girlfriend's belongings. Brittany had a plethora of items to choose from. Marjorie's car keys and cell phone, a Movado watch, a Lacoste polo shirt, a pair of diamond earrings, and a bottle of Vera Wang perfume. All hers for the taking. She also found Marjorie's phone number. A few days after the break-in, 
Brittany called Marjorie, wanting to mess with her. When Marjorie picked up the phone and said hello, Brittany quickly hung up. Brittany's behavior was so threatening to Marjorie that in 2007, she and Maury filed a restraining order. In the filing, the two cited the theft and asked for the return of their items, but Brittany refused to admit to taking Marjorie's things. She did legally agree to avoid the couple for a year, but in her eyes, it was a loose agreement, a strongly worded suggestion. Brittany felt that Maury only filed the restraining order to show her he was moving on. At least once, Brittany parked her car outside of Maury's home, and one day she followed Maury and Marjorie from his dental office to an office depot. After these repeated violations, Brittany was ordered back to court, but she postponed her date twice, claiming that she couldn't get away from work for the hearing. At one point, she even hired a lawyer, but her attorney mysteriously withdrew from the case. In May of 2008, a bench warrant was issued for Brittany's arrest because of her failure to appear in court, but the warrant eventually expired. Perhaps afraid of jail time, Brittany finally left Maury and Marjorie alone. Brittany's life went on as normal. She found a new job as a desk clerk at a luxury hotel, the Willard Intercontinental, and one of her colleagues from that time said that Brittany was always happy, always smiling. Brittany was good at dealing with demanding guests and quickly found a spot on the guest services team, which meant that she was responsible for the high-end clientele. She lived in a trendy apartment in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. She saw one of the city's best hairstylists, wore designer clothes, ordered expensive restaurant meals, and sat in the best seats at Washington Redskins games. She talked about buying a luxury condo. To her friends, Brittany had it all. But just as during her college years, Brittany's seemingly perfect lifestyle might have been a front. Behind the facade, Brittany was actually broke. Brittany couldn't pay a speeding ticket nor her student loans. She covered the cost of her fancy hairdresser by finding excuses not to pay. She was two months behind on rent and subsequently evicted from her apartment. She went to go live with her sister. In Brittany's personal life, she was juggling a few relationships, but they were mostly casual. She was lonely. Meanwhile, Brittany's brother, Chris, felt that Brittany needed to pick a career, not just a job. He wanted her to work hard at something she was passionate about, the way she had with soccer. Brittany thought about what she might do to climb out of her slump. She'd started exercising again and liked the way it helped her feel better and more confident about herself. She decided to get away from her hotel job and into something that might put her on the path towards one day opening her own gym. She decided to apply for a retail job at a growing athleisure brand called Lululemon. Lululemon preached exactly the kind of an aspirational lifestyle that Brittany wanted for herself. Lululemon pants were both a pricey status symbol and a token of self-improvement. The store's shopping bags were plastered with quotes like, Sweat once a day, do one thing a day that scares you, and friends are more important than money. 
Lululemon prided itself on hiring young, smart, ambitious retail associates that it called educators. Personal growth was valued and even facilitated by the company. Store educators posted their one-year, five-year, and ten-year goals on the fitting room walls. Lululemon was a place where Brittany believed she could turn her life around. And in 2010, she accepted a job as a store educator at the Georgetown location. But Brittany lied her way into the position. She didn't disclose her past legal troubles, nor financial ones. She faked her college degree, claiming that she had graduated from Stony Brook with a 3.4 GPA, when in reality, her GPA was 1.98. Still, Brittany excelled. Her bright personality made her a natural saleswoman, and she helped to organize a Lululemon workout and brunch event called Beach Bums and Bellinis at a nearby luxury hotel. However, just as she had on her college soccer team, Brittany started to develop a reputation for her extra-legal activities. Team members started noticing cash missing from their wallets and the store registers, the manager was able to figure out that one person had worked every shift that reported a theft, Brittany. Lululemon preached the Hindu-derived yogic principle of asteya, which means not stealing, but the company struggled when this principle was breached. Managers were supposed to have proof of a theft, and other than the shift coincidences with Brittany, there wasn't a way to fire Brittany. Yet. Brittany had clearly coveted Lululemon clothing even before working at the store. Owning and wearing Lululemon fit in with the kind of lifestyle Brittany appeared to have, one that included Marc Jacobs' clutches, an all-white apartment, and a closet that looked like a store display at a boutique filled with Lulu clothing. Just before Christmas in 2010, the company hosted a shop night where employees could buy the merchandise at a steep discount. They were given a $1,000 limit, but Brittany asked the manager if she could bend the rules and go slightly over. The manager agreed, thinking the overage would be small, but Brittany racked up over $2,000 worth of merchandise, more than double the original limit. This was considered discount abuse by the company and was cause for termination. The manager called Brittany into a meeting and fired her. This enraged Brittany. She'd gotten permission to go over the limit. She thought she hadn't done anything wrong. And besides, Brittany knew other employees had gone over the limit too, and they still had their jobs. Why had she, of all people, been fired? Why hadn't they been fired? Should she hire a lawyer? Brittany took her complaints to the company's regional managers. After some deliberation, the region decided to reinstate Brittany, but moved her to a different store. Brittany could pick any location she wanted. She'd stolen, lied, and come out on top. A 2015 study by Jan Kubinek, Lawrence Snyder, and Richard Abrams found that the repetition of criminal behavior was directly correlated with the magnitude of the reward for that behavior. Instead of being punished for her thefts, Brittany was greatly rewarded. She got to keep all her Lulu merchandise and move to a store in a better location. She began to feel like she could get away with anything. 
Brittany met with the manager of the Bethesda, Maryland location, Rachel Ortley, for an interview to determine whether Brittany was the right fit for that store. Rachel knew about Brittany's reputation, but either because she wanted to give Brittany a second chance, or more likely because Lululemon feared a lawsuit, Rachel took her on. In January of 2011, Brittany was rehired as an employee of the Lululemon in Bethesda. In February, she began her first shift. By March, she'd kill a co-worker. Up next, we'll hear how Brittany finally gets caught in the act and graduates from thief to murderer. Now, back to the story. In February of 2011, 28-year-old Brittany Norwood felt like she finally had some direction in her life. She had just been reinstated as an employee at the Bethesda, Maryland Lululemon store. And outside of work, Brittany was studying physiology, kinesiology, and anatomy. She was hoping to have her personal trainer certification by the end of March. It was the first step toward her dream of one day opening her own gym. By then, Brittany was in phenomenal shape and often attended not one, but two workout classes a day. The other Lulu women were similarly hardworking and ambitious, including Jaina Murray, a key leader at the Bethesda store. Jaina was working toward dual master's degrees in business and communications and eyeing marketing jobs at Lululemon's headquarters in Vancouver. She was also planning on moving to be with her boyfriend in the Pacific Northwest, the region where Brittany was from. The two formed a fast friendship. As before, Brittany quickly impressed her co-workers and bosses in Bethesda. She started push-up competitions with store customers, offered to pick up lunches for team members, and cheered on the runners at the Marine Corps Marathon. But as before, the transgressions in Brittany's personal life also started to pile up. Debt collectors were calling about her outstanding student loans. Her bank was calling about her constantly overdrawn account, and her roommate had just discovered that, though she had been giving Brittany money, the utility bills hadn't been paid in months. Brittany was desperate. Her financial troubles were growing bigger than she could manage, and the $11 an hour she was making at Lululemon wasn't going to cut it. She had to find some other source of income that would get her quick cash, something that was easy and didn't require taking on a second job. On the night of February 18, 2011, Brittany logged onto Craigslist and started exploring the section for personal ads. She found countless number of men seeking sugar babies, women who were willing to provide sex or companionship in exchange for money. She messaged back and forth with some of the sugar daddies, talking to many at once, but she talked most frequently with one named Bobby and agreed to spend time with him in exchange for a weekly allowance. Brittany later told him that she was interested in a more long-term relationship, hoping that they could connect on a deeper level. She wrote that she didn't have any hidden agendas. In Brittany's words, she was a younger woman with goals and dreams and could use financial assistance. 
It might seem as if Britney's involvement in sex work was purely financially motivated and would have had a negative effect on her self-esteem. But a study led by Cecilia Benoit found that the relationship between sex work and self-esteem is actually far more complex. The study examined sex workers in terms of their relationship to their self-worth, their self-efficacy, and their feelings of authenticity. Benoit and her team found that the relationship between these factors and various kinds of sex work was complicated. Some sex workers reported positive increases in their self-worth after beginning jobs in sex work. Therefore, it's quite possible that Brittany wasn't just using the sugar daddies as a way to increase her income, but also using them as a way to combat any negative feelings she might have had about herself. She was in deep financial trouble, just like she'd seen her parents go through, and the men she consorted with might have helped her mask the shame that had been building since childhood. They may have been a point of security in a storm of uncertainty. Whatever the effect of Britney's second job as a sugar baby, she would soon be unmasked as a thief. On February 25, 2011, a co-worker showed Brittany the new bottle of perfume that she'd just purchased, a scent by Vera Wang. When the co-worker wasn't looking, Brittany took it right out of her friend's bag. Two days later, the co-worker texted Brittany to ask if she'd seen the perfume. Brittany responded by saying that she hadn't, but reassured her that it couldn't have gone far. The perfume would show up. It did show up but not in the way that Brittany had promised. A few days later, a different coworker saw a bottle of Vera Wang perfume in Brittany's purse, which obviously aroused suspicion. And that wasn't the only incident of theft. Brittany had also been stealing money out of coworkers' wallets, $10 from one, 60 from another. It's unclear whether or not Brittany knew of her team's suspicions, though she did tell a friend that she felt her chances for advancement at Lululemon were limited. And as Brittany got closer to taking the personal trainer exam, she started looking at where she would go next in her career. A friend of Brittany's worked at a high-end gym, Equinox, as a personal trainer. Equinox, like Lululemon, was a national brand associated with luxury and dedication to fitness. If Brittany wanted to open her own gym someday, Equinox would be a great place to get started, and it would provide her with a cushy income while she built her business as a trainer. Brittany sent in her resume and soon had her first interview. It went well, and she was asked to come back in and meet with the club's general manager. The final interview was scheduled for the following Monday. She felt she was days away from starting a more successful chapter in her life. All else seemed normal in Brittany's life that week. One of Brittany's sisters was getting married later that year, and Brittany helped her pick out a wedding dress. Another sister was staying late at work and asked Brittany to pick up her two sons at school. Brittany picked up her nephews and took them to get pizza and pasta. She texted the friend that had connected her with Equinox and offered to buy her Lululemon clothing with the employee discount as a thank you. All things considered, Brittany was doing well. This continued right up until the morning of March 11, 2011. That morning, Brittany messaged her sugar daddy, Bobby, to confirm that they would be meeting up that weekend. 
Later, she left her apartment and attended an aerial yoga class, then met up with a friend for lunch at a brewery. Brittany ordered a dark beer and talked enthusiastically about her sister's wedding. She was in a good mood, excited by the possibility of the job at Equinox. She had a 3 p.m. shift, but wanted to get her nails done and convinced her friend to go with her to a local salon. They paid $39 for their manicures and pedicures. Brittany was still blowing on her fingers when she walked into the Lululemon store. Jaina Murray was also working the 3 p.m. shift. She would be closing with Brittany, and by 9 p.m., it would only be her and Brittany in the store. In a private conversation with another employee, Jaina joked about how she was closing with the thief. She wondered if tonight would be the night that they would finally catch Brittany in the act and made a joke about it. The shift went as expected. Jaina struck up conversations with their regulars. Brittany complimented a customer's top and sold a pair of speed shorts. Their last customers came and went, and at 8.57 p.m., Brittany and Jaina closed the front doors and began to lock up. Jaina and Brittany spent half an hour refolding clothes, arranging merchandise, sweeping the floor, and finalizing the day's sales reports. The last thing on their list was an end-of-shift ritual that both would have been familiar with by then. It was Lululemon's policy that employees check their co-workers' bags before they left the store to prevent any merchandise theft. The idea was that each employee would hold the other accountable to the company's principle of non-stealing. So at 9.30 p.m., that's exactly what Brittany and Jaina did. Brittany checked Jaina's first and cleared it. Then Jaina checked Brittany's. Alongside a makeup pouch, a candle, and a curling iron, Jaina found a pair of cropped yoga pants with the price tag still attached. She'd been caught. Brittany tried to keep her composure as Jaina asked if she had the receipt. Brittany said she'd thrown it out as employees weren't allowed to return purchases anyway. Jaina then asked who had rung her up, so Brittany threw out the name of one of their co-workers. Jaina then tried to check the computers to verify the purchase, but the systems were closed for the night, so she said they would just deal with it the next day. For a moment, Brittany was safe. At 9.45 p.m., Jaina set the burglar alarm. She and Brittany slipped out of the store and parted ways. We don't know what Brittany was thinking as she headed towards the subway, but we can assume that Brittany knew she had just been caught stealing, and the next day she would lose her job. Not just that, but if word got back to Equinox, she would lose her future, her dream. So Brittany knew something had to be done. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Brittany Norwood's story. We'll cover what happened the night that Brittany murdered her coworker and how she tried to lie her way out of it. 
For more information on Brittany Norwood, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Yoga Store Murder by Dan Morse extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Stacey Lee Nemec, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.